0: listener production this is the five of my life with me nigel marsh the series where i talk to notable people about five of their defining things the way it works is my guests always choose a favorite film book song place and possession they tell me their choices in advance so i can research them but they don't tell me why they've chosen them that's the subject of our conversation The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. As the face of the global slow movement, Carl is a man after my own heart. It was such a pleasure to get to know the personality behind the crusade in this conversation and learn how the slow movement started. So, Carl, welcome to Five of My Life. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Looking forward to it. Ever since you and I shared a virtual podium in Slovenia, I have been looking forward to this. It's a small world, isn't it? One of the glories of um, Zoom land, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird. It's sort of, a, why would the Slovenian government be paying you and I to give a speech? But I'm, I'm very glad that they did. As am I. Now, on Five of My Life, it's traditional that we start with uh, our guest's film. Uh, and you've chosen Pope Francis's favourite film, no less. It's the first Danish film to win an Oscar for foreign language film, uh, Babette's Feast, 1987. Uh, tell us about that, Carl. Why did you choose that? Well, I didn't realise it was Pope Francis's favourite <laughs> film. <laughs> I'm going to guess that
1: I like it for different reasons than he does. Uh, well, I suppose I should give you a sort of potted summary, should I? It's um, set in a... It's in the 19th century, late 19th century. It's set in a remote, windswept, austere corner of northern Denmark, Jutland. And it's in a little, it's in a village of um, a very religious place, uh, a place where pleasure is regarded with great suspicion. And uh, people are all about sort of, um, you know, the Lord and 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 service to others and so on. And into this bubble of plainness and beigeness appears a a French woman, an exile from Paris. Uh, We've just learned that she's, you know, her family been killed and she's comes and spends time in this village and she's there for 14 years and she just sort of blends in and she's kind of a, a free, she works free as a servant and cooks. And then she out of nowhere wins the lottery in Paris and suddenly has this huge sum of money and she plows it all into producing the most extraordinary feast. So this is a village where people, live on gruel, right, and, and take a kind of perverse pleasure in eating pale brown fart food, and it's just completely joyless, right? The whole idea they keep going on about how food is simply fuel to keep the body going in order to keep the soul going in order to pay homage to God. And so suddenly they're brought round the table for this explosive homage to sensual pleasure. Uh, produced by this Parisian woman. I, it is the kind of, I, f- I found, it, I watched it, I mean, I guess I would have been um, in my early 20s at the time, and it was in the 80s. And it, it kind of took me back in a lot of ways to my own childhood because food has been hugely important to me from day one. My parents are, you know, card-carrying foodies, hugely interested in, in cuisine. And one of the things we always talked about sitting around the table was food. You know, it was it was a, it was a source of great magic and music and happiness and and bringing people together. I guess the film, to me, the film is about the transformative power of food, that it has so much more to offer us than recharging our physical batteries, that it's a kind of art, it's spiritual, it's a celebration, it's communal. We are never at, in my view, our most human and at our, at our most... Transcendent than when we when we are breaking bread together, and that Babette's Feast film just brought all of that together to me in a way that was was extraordinary. And I it, it, even thinking about it and talking about it now brings goosebumps to me.
0: <laughs> so, are, are you a are you a good cook? Would you say
1: I'm an avid cook. I, I mean, people seem to like my food. Uh, I mean, food has carried on me. That's one of the great inheritances I've had from my 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 parents is that I've love food is something that we talk about a lot in my my own family and my children i have passed that on to my kids who are both huge amateur chefs uh, i mean that's one of they're both away at university now but that's one of the main things that we communicate they send me photos of what they've been cooking or if they've got an unusual uh, vegetable in their box this week they'll they'll send a you know a whatsapp message saying what can i do with this or what was the last thing you did with aubergine and so on so it, so food is a is a light motif in our family and it's something that Links the generations, so even when my parents come to stay, they've you know they will cook with the grandchildren and uh, go shopping to farmers markets together and so on. So it's just it's like a drumbeat in our family. It's a it's a it's a thread that pulls us all together.
0: And where do you think your parents got that from? Is it what 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 led to that? I know where my mum got it from because in a way my father is from
1: Mauritius, in, in off the um, southeast coast of Africa, and it comes from a you know an all singing, all dancing hot climate, you know, sensual culture. And my mom is almost like a kind of Miss Jean Brody, right? She's from a sort of austere Presbyterian family. The, the, the food my mom grew up versus the food my father grew up just, you know, chalk and cheese, a little bit like Babette's Feast. And I suppose my father, now I think about it, I have not thought about it before. My father wandered into my mother's life a bit like Babette wandered into that, that Danish village <laughs> <laughs> and brought with him a, a love, a, a fire, an obsession with with savoring, right? With flavor, with food, with the the, the sensuality of of the table, and I just infected my mom <laughs> with that same bug, and together they've carried on just with that torch. So I it, it's, I've not I've not seen that connection before, but now I have to tell my father I see him as the Babette of the
0: family. <laughs> um, now we're going to move to the 50s from the 80s for your second choice, Carl. You've chosen the Graham Greene novel, *The Quiet American*. Tell us, sir, uh, why you chose that one.
1: Well, this is one of those books, maybe the book that, I mean, it's always funny. You look back on your life and pinpoint certain moments and turns and forks in the road and think, well, that's what pushed me here and brought me, and you you know, one never really knows, but if I had to pick one book that really set the course for my life, it would be The Quiet American. This book is about a journalist uh, who is in Vietnam just as the war is kicking off there in the 50s, 60s, and he meets a, a wild-eyed, idealistic American called Pyle. And it's, it's really about the idea of um, intervening in other people's affairs. And it's kind of a meditation on whether that actually works. And there's you know, a love story, there's a love triangle and so on, but I guess I, I think that I was at that point when I read the book, I identified myself with Pyle Who is the idealistic American who believed that you could go in there and help other people. And and then I encountered this Fowler character, the journalist who was a a little older, a bit more cynical and didn't really believe you could help people in that way that you would stumble in and do more harm than good. And that those twin beacons, innocence and idealism can lead you into some pretty dark places. And and that's sort of what happens in the book. And, And I guess I came away from that book thinking, I want to be of service, but not in the pile mode. I want to be of service somehow by by writing about the world, by just being a witness to it, which is kind of what Fowler did. He went out and just told the world what he saw, what he heard, what he understood to be going on around him. And and that that was really the spark for the first bit of my career. And I, in a way, what I've always been, which is a journalist. That's that, that's I, I, I came away from that book thinking I want to write about the world, to make it a better place. And that was, I think, The Quiet American took me there.
0: And uh, was this before you worked with the street kids or is, is it after? I have read in your uh, bio, it sounds amazing, you were working with street kids in Brazil, is that right?
1: It was around the same time. I think it may have been slightly afterwards. Because, the, I, yes, I worked with street children in Brazil uh, for, for a time. And that, that also pushed me towards wanting to, do the right thing to help and so on. And I mean I grew up as I said before in a comfortable, you know, middle-class Canadian family. We wanted for nothing. It was safe, it was secure, it was it was like you know, growing up in a womb. And then suddenly to be thrust at the age of I mean the first time I went, I guess I was probably 18, 19, and then I went back again at age of 21 into this raucous, chaotic Frightening world of vivid, you know, Hieronymus Bosch, almost like violence uh, visited often upon children, It was just a just rocked me to my core and foundations, and I and that really also fueled the idea of doing something. I wanted to do something, and I guess all around that time, and then I probably I think I, now I think about it, it was probably Graham Greene. I read, read shortly after that, just sort of crystallized this idea of a desperate. Fire in my belly to do something about this. Then the book, pointing the way to what, the how, the how I could do it, was with words and 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 bearing witness on the page.
0: And, and tell us a bit about your journalism career for those who are not familiar with it. I mean, you're very well known for the, obviously the slow, uh, the slow movement. But 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 pre-slow, you're you, you're a very uh, eminent, respected journalist. But tell us about that
1: once I worked out that this is what I wanted to do I started out in Edinburgh because I, I went to university in Edinburgh having grown up in Canada born in Edinburgh went back to Scotland did my university there and so I, that was the obvious place to start off in journalism so I just started freelancing and for anyone who would take my take my my stuff on anything going and then I began writing uh, you know getting sent abroad to do things around Europe but I always knew I wanted to go back to South America and so I, I did I, I would have gone to Brazil, but Brazil was crawling with freelance journalists at the time. And so I looked elsewhere and I, I ended up going to Buenos Aires in Argentina, bought a one way ticket with a rucksack. I didn't know anyone there and just literally flew out and, you know, all kinds of adventures, got on myself on my feet and then spent three years based there covering South America for The Economist, The Observer, the Miami Heralds. Came back to London after three years and covered Europe for The Houston Chronicle and then a Canadian paper, The National Post. And that was a time when I really felt that, I don't know, I guess you you feel like there's a kind of confluence of factors in your life. And it just feels like, it felt like I was in the zone. It just felt like I was doing the right thing. I was making a difference. And then towards the end of my journalistic chapter, I felt like, I mean, it's partly the world of the media shifted and there was less money for the kind of journalism I wanted to do, which was reportage, taking time to go and spend getting to understand what was happening in a place, to to get beneath the skin. That began to become, to seem, I think, in the media, the global industrial media complex to seem like like a luxury or, or a waste of time and money. And everything sped up. Suddenly, you didn't have three days to go off and investigate a story. You had to write it in three hours, right? Or you were tweeting about it. And I just began to feel that in my earlier part of my career, I felt like I was on the bleeding edge of what was happening in the world. I was bearing witness. I was, I was, I felt making a difference at some level. I began to feel like I'd just become a wing of the infotainment industrial complex somehow. And I wasn't, I wasn't really moving the dial at all. I was just, I was going through the motions. And so that really laid the groundwork for the next move, which was away from journalism into, into writing books.
0: For your third choice, we are going back to the 80s, Carl. Uh, you've chosen the seventh and last single from uh, Bruce Spinkton's Born in the USA album, My Hometown. Tell us about that.
1: I love that song. And, and the first time I heard it, it just blew me away. It's, it's a story of a, a small town. Uh, it's a, a little boy or a man looking back on his childhood and remembering, you know, running to pick up the paper uh, for his dad and being, and, and, and then the, the, this, this is the, the racial tension in town, the growing up, the coming of age, and then the leaving his town as the town died and withered on the vine and remembering and telling his own son. you know, he, In the, begets, the beginning of the song, his dad drives through town with him on his lap and tells him, remember, this is your hometown. And in the end of the song, he's doing the same as he leaves that town to his own son saying, remember this place, this is your hometown. And the song just means so many things to me because I'm an expat. I left my hometown, and so it's it's very it's a very poignant and kind of wistful journey for me every time I, I listen to it because it takes me back to my own feelings of leaving a place that was me that marked me that that made me which was was Canada and that complex tangled relationship that you always have as an expat with the place you left the sort of you almost end up having a kind of love hate relationship or you feel you feel guilty for leaving. Um, there are all kinds of things that are tied up with it. It's, it's one of those songs that I often, well, in the middle of the day, if I just feel I need to tap into some kind of deeper reservoir of feeling or meaning somehow, i just sometimes put it on and I'll put on different versions of it. There's versions on the YouTube where he's singing it live and it brings a different vibe and a different poetry to it. But there's another angle to my hometown as well, which is that it, at, when I became a father and discovered that, you don't get to sleep anymore in the early years. And you're always being woken up by howling, mewling infants. And you have to get up and, you know, soothe them in the middle of the night. And I found myself singing my hometown to both my children in those early years. And it was a song that soothed them. It, it, they, it And it, it became a kind of lullaby. So in the in many, many hundreds, probably thousands of nights, I have found myself with one of my two children cradled in my arms, singing very softly to them. Bruce Springsteen's My Hometown. And so there's a kind of, I don't know, there's a sort of symmetry to that, that it was me leaving my hometown, leaving the cradling arms of my own childhood and trying to bring some of that back by by singing it to my children in the dead of night and so on. And um, so it's a song that sometimes we play. We don't often play it. It's not part of our family soundtrack where we're in the car going somewhere but when we were when you asked me to think about songs, it was an easy choice for me to pick that song. But I I did I had not really talked to my children about that song before, but I sent them a YouTube clip of him singing this song. It was in a live version, which I found particularly affecting. And it was amazing. They both wrote back to me right away and said, God, I remember this. It's so funny, but I know the song so well, right? <laughs> it's sort of <laughs> is there filed away in a deep loving archive somewhere. So I, know, I just love this idea of I mean we start off talking about Babette's Feast and and the light motif of food passing through the generations. I I see that song doing something very similar sort of weaving together me with them our generations and and perhaps they will pass it on in some different format to my grandchildren and their kids one day.
0: We're moving on to your fourth choice, your place, which is an outdoor rink. And I'm imagining that's a skating rink in Edmonton, Alberta. Tell us about that, Cal. That is my
1: happy place. That is my happy place. It's a uh, well in Western Canada, that part of Canada, it's very cold, right? So you have outdoor rinks, which are you get the boards and just grass in the middle. And then for all of the long winter months when it's below zero, the rink is flooded and you have free outdoor ice to skate on. Uh, usually one of the rinks in every neighborhood has two rinks and one is for just general skating the other is for hockey and we that these two rinks were a three-minute walk from my house right just the end of our street and I just lived there it was the place that I you know all my changes were there um from that famous song Neil Young you know um there's a town in North Ontario uh, you know all my changes were there I kind of feel like the that hockey rink all my changes were there it was where I I came of age it was a it, it's always where I tap into when I think of the, the unalloyed freedom and joy of, of growing up, of being young, of childhood. It's kind of where I began to work out who I was, what kind of person I was. And then of course, when I left, it's, it's that link to my Canadian roots, right? It's, it's, um, I live in London now in England, but I've, I've carried on playing hockey, right? I played ice hockey here for 12 years. Recently, I switched over to ball hockey, which is the same sport, but without the ice. So you play on with shoes and a ball, but it's, everything is the same otherwise. And all the people I play with are expat Canadians, right? So it's my my one moment. Everything else in my life is very English. My family are all English, my neighbor, my circle, everything. But my hockey is my, that's my going back to my hometown, if you like, right? Is that rink. And there's so many, it, it's got other moments in my life, I, I went back about, th- I think, three years, about the third year of university, I went back and worked a construction job in Edmonton, went back from Edinburgh for the summer, and then I, I ended up just through fluke being put on a crew that rebuilt the rink right beside my house, right? I just, it was just a complete coincidence. The, the same one. Exactly the same one, and so I tore down the outdoor shack, native breeze blocks, that I had grown up in, you know, my toes getting frostbite, uh, coming in to... To warm up my fingers before going out to play again when it's thirty below, right? I tore that down with my own hands, right, and then rebuilt it over a summer. And we rebuilt the rink, and it was just—I mean, it was—I don't know—I feel almost a little bit weepy now thinking of it. Uh, and so it just felt like the the gods of whatever were, were were just vouchsafing a a little something to me, a token of of of, of memory or a, a reminder or just a little top up of the joy I'd had before. And, and I say now, you know, projecting way into the future, whenever anyone says, where do you want your ashes scattered? That's where I want my ashes scattered. I want them scattered at center ice in, um, in the ice hockey rink of that um, Aspen Gardens <laughs> uh, was my community league.
0: That's fantastic. I, I, I went to an ice hockey game in Canada as a young boy. It's incredibly violent. Is that? Would I just have a bad experience? Or the people on the, on the yeah. they were beating each other up.
1: People used to say, I went to a
0: fight and an ice hockey game
1: broke out, right? <laughs> it was a lot more violent. I mean, a lot of punch-ups and stuff in the past. It's, it's become less so. But it is a rough sport. It is a tough sport. You know, it is not a sport. I mean, I, always, I mean, I've now got very much into football, soccer, right here, uh, and just the different cultures. I mean, I can't. You know, the way that footballers, if you brush against them, their shoulder, they flop in the air like wounded divas and roll around in excruciating pain on the on the floor. If you mess up their gelled hair, you know that kind of thing. In, in the hockey culture, that just wouldn't happen, right? I mean, if if a hockey player can't get up from the ice, it's because he cannot get up, right? <laughs> uh, so a very diff- it's a very different culture. And that's actually something that my son has, is a huge and a very, very good football player. Uh, but that's something I've passed on to him. I tried to get him to play hockey and he, he's learned to rollerblade and stuff, but it's hard and to get those things to jump the generation in, in, different, in different countries like this. But I have passed on that ethos of hockey that you do not feign injury. You do not pretend to be hurt. You know, you stay on your feet Good if you on it. <laughs> but actually, just to round out the, the idea of ice hockey, no, it is rough, but it's also a game of rare and exquisite poetry. I mean, there's so much finesse. And I'm not I'm actually not a kind of rough player at all. I'm the kind of person who's av- trying to avoid getting hit. I'm more of a I'm a playmaker and a scorer, and I I I love the I love the geometry and the um the music of the game, which is is a hymn to me.
0: You, you wrote wonderfully in, in in. I mean, I know I shouldn't have favourites, but but my favourite of your uh, books is Boulder. I, I just oh, thought that was right. a, a, a sensational book. But that started with a story about you uh, struggling with uh, the challenges of getting slightly older and maybe not being uh, at the peak of your game.
1: Yeah, well, that was a yeah. That, again, I, as I said before, <laughs> a personal existential crisis. Boulder started off when I was at a hockey tournament up in the north of England. My team were in the quarterfinals, and we were. It was 1-1 and we were struggling to beat a team that we had annihilated the year before. And then out of nowhere, I scored a an amazing goal. It's off a face-off. It's a, if anyone knows anything about hockey, it's a difficult, rare kind of goal to score. And I scored it. And it was just one of those amazing, you know, kind of life-affirming moments. And we were all going crazy and my team was propelled into the semifinals. And I came off the uh, the, the floor floating on air. And then one of the organizers in the dressing room came up to me and he was looking at player profiles. And he just said, you know, I don't know where he you know, it turned out that I was the oldest player there. And I knew that I was one of the oldest, right? I'm not in denial. I mean, most of the players there are my son's age, right? They're in their 20s or their 30s. Uh, but I did I, somehow being the oldest, I don't know, I felt that my blood running cold in my veins. And s- suddenly all these questions began crowding in. I mean, I, you know, I was thinking, well, are people laughing at me? Do, do I look out of place here? Should I take up a different... More age-appropriate pastime like bingo, maybe right? And you know, I got nothing against bingo, but I, I, I'm, I prefer hockey, right? For now, anyway. And and it was so strange because I, the important thing was that I was playing well, I, I was having fun, and yet somehow all of a sudden my chronological age had landed on my head like an iron anvil, right? It had become this huge burden on my back. It had become something that made me ashamed and began to question whether. I should be doing the thing that I loved and could do well. And I, I, I don't know, it just, it shook me down to the, my roots. And I came away from that tournament thinking, why? Why do we feel so guilty, so afraid, so ashamed? Why do we lie about our age? You know, why has it got this terrible power over us, our chronological age? And is there a different story to tell about ageing? One that would make me feel okay about being the oldest player to turn, term- actually not just okay, but proud of it, right? And that was kind of the spark and the starting point for writing, writing Boulder, but yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, that also the hockey was woven in there as well.
0: The fifth and final choice on Five My Life is, is often my favorite. It's the possession. People tend to get quite personal with this and you've chosen an art pencil wrap. Could you tell us uh, why, but could you describe it first?
1: It's a gift from my my wife. It's a kind of canvas wrap that folds over. It probably wraps up sort of three times and then there's a little buckle on it. You open it up and it just f- splays out an array of pencils and little charcoal pieces and a couple of erasers and so on. Uh, the kind of thing that artists would have used, you know, for for decades, centuries possibly in different forms. I really struggled at first actually, it was funny when you asked to, for me to choose a possession, I my first reaction was I. How am I gonna do that? Well, do I pick a hockey st- I, I'm just so uninterested in possessions. And whenever that dinner party parlor joke or question comes up, what would you save if you were running out of your burning house? I, I could never really think of anything because I don't, there's just nothing that I couldn't replace that I cherish that much as an object, to be honest. And then I thought, well, actually, I probably would reach for my canvas art pencil bag because it's got so many good associations. There's little nicks on it and it's not, it's clean and tidy as it was before because it's lived along with me, and I'd want to remember some of those little, little traces that have been left behind, and feel its heft and its its weave again in my hand. And I'm not an artist by any stretch of anybody's imagination. I'm terrible at drawing. In fact, it's a it's a kind of family joke how bad I am at drawing. But I love drawing, right? I love sketching, and it it ties into really what I suppose in some ways what many people have called my life's work, which is the idea of slowing down. And what what sketching does, what drawing an object does is that it forces you, it invites you, but it also forces you to do something that very few of us ever do nowadays in this media-drenched, multitasking culture of distraction and instant gratification, which is it forces you to pause, be still, and to look and observe at one thing, right? To be present in a way that I think very few of us managed to do nowadays. And so for me, it's the ultimate act of slow with a capital S, it's a kind of meditation. And I find that I don't often draw things that anybody would ever want to look at, but it's just the moment. It's about shifting into a different mode, a different way of being. It's like slipping in a chip into your head and blocking out the sound and fury that swirls around us in daily life of distraction and stimulation and saying, I am gonna be here in this moment now and I'm going to inhabit it and feel it out and make sense of it fully. And, and so I, I, take, I don't take it everywhere with me and sometimes I just have a pencil and, uh, in my pocket and I'll do a little sketch, but I know that when I reach for that canvas bag, just to feel the rough texture of it in my hand, I know I can feel that I am on my way to a moment of serenity, to a place of tranquility to a kind of reconnection with myself and and the world around me. And I know that I'm going to open it out, choose a pencil, and the rest of the world is just going to melt away into insignificance and background
0: nothingness. And I'm just going to be. You you can't be speeding up and distracted by distraction and multitasking if you're trying to get the angle of that roof correct. You, You just have to patiently observe and zone in.
1: There's a kind of simplicity and minimalism about drawing as well that it comes down just simply to you the pencil and the line that you're trying to capture and i think in a world of spiraling complexity and constant distraction that is such a bomb isn't it (laughs) such a gift just to switch into that very simple mode and whenever when all the work i do with slow people so often Say they come to it via minimalism or simplicity, the simplicity movement that is about paring back, getting to the
0: core of things,
1: uh, stripping away the fluff and the filler and getting to the heart of the matter.
0: Are, are, are you an optimist, mate? I mean, I, in, in my life, I, I, I think uh, I, well, my wife would say I'm too slow, but I, 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 I don't buy into this. The whole point of life is going ever faster. But but how do you think we're going generally? Is society getting on board with slow or are you an outlier? I'm less and less an outlier. I definitely was at the beginning. I felt
1: like a voice in the wilderness, but I don't feel like that now. I just saw just one little data point here to share. I saw the other day that uh, Google and YouTube had crunched the numbers looking at the number of views of videos on YouTube with the words slow living in the title. And over the last year, the number of views has gone up 400%. So I think it's just a reminder that this pandemic, which f- forced us to put on the brakes, uh, has operated, I think, for a lot of people, like a like a giant workshop in slowness. Right? And, and of course, that doesn't mean that I welcome the pandemic. It's been a total nightmare for, for all of us in different ways. But I do think there's a silver lining here, that we've been forced to slow down long enough now that many of us have tasted the silver lining. We've seen that that less is more, that FOMO is absurd that there is great magic and music to be had by by slowing down, by being present. And I, I think that that is something that that's a kind of lesson that a lot of people I think will take forward from the pandemic. So I was optimistic about the prospects for the slow revolution before the pandemic. I'm even more optimistic now. I think that at the granular individual level, people are waking up to the folly of living in fast forward, trying to reconnect with their inner tortoise in lots of different ways. But I think also globally, that the pandemic has been a moment to reset, reboot the world. And you're already seeing new ways of thinking about uh, the role of the state, uh, the environment, uh, changing the way cities are structured so there's more space for cyclists, for instance, and, and pedestrians. So I, I think that the dial was already moving in favor of slow before. I think it will move more quickly um, in the years to come um, delicious irony there but um, one to be embraced
0: i think your work not just on slow but on parenting on aging it is sensational mate you are a real powerful force for good globally and it's been a just a delight to chat to you there is one further trick question on five of my life Uh, who would you like to hear on five of my life next carl and why
1: I'm going to say this with slight apprehension and mixed feelings, but maybe Elon Musk.
0: Great. And why would you want to hear um, Musk's five?
1: I disagree with him about so many things, <laughs> but I do find him a oddly enthralling figure. And so much of what he does seems to be aimed at the public arena. And then other times it seems wildly unfiltered and I, I guess I just from curiosity, I'd like to peel back the facade and, and get a sense of what's driving this person who has, by various means, placed himself in a hugely pivotal place in modern life and, and, and is, is massively influential. So I think it will be useful for us to know more about what makes Elon Musk tick.
0: Challenge accepted. We will uh, start the hunt as of tomorrow morning. Um Carl, this has been a, a total joy. I, I, I've been looking forward to this for, for weeks and thank you for, for coming on. Um and I wish you all love and success with your important work in the future.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a it's been a treat. It's been a real it's been a joy, actually. I've really I'm, I'm going to go away with much more to think about than I came into it with, which is always a good sign from an interview. So thank you. I've enjoyed it from start to finish, and I send you a big, uh, warm, slow embrace from my uh, pandemic bunker in London. Fantastic. Keep sketching, mate. <laughs> hopefully, I'll keep getting better at it, even if very slowly.
0: Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicklish. Listener.